and hello again, and welcome to a surprise extra episode right here for you on one of the most unlucky days of the year, Friday the 13th. You're here listening to the Nasty Pasty podcast, otherwise known as me, Andy Roberts, yabbering on when you could be outside smoking some joints, having premarital sex, and getting slaughtered. You know the score. I'm covering all the films that simply weren't tough enough to offend the sensibilities of the Conservatives when Maggie Thatcher needed to flex her moralist muscles. So on this very special extra, I'm going to be covering two of the famous Friday the 13th entries, being very careful to not cover the two that were actually video nasties themselves. So these ones are Friday the 13th Part 3 and Friday the 13th The Final Chapter, or Friday the 13th Part 4, whatever you'd like to call it. Now, as you guys may know, Friday the 13th and Friday the 13th Part 2 were Section 3 video nasties, which means that they were liable to be seized from the shops, and the shopkeeper wouldn't get convicted as long as he cooperated. Of course, with them releasing in 1980 and 1981, the sequels we're covering today were released in 1982 and 84, so they were released still during the Fiorore. Now, Part 1 was famously cut in the US, but uncut in the UK, while Part 2 was butchered by the MPAA, and the rest of the film only has this cut version to watch as a result. Really speaking though, however, the Friday the 13th series has been mused upon, analysed and reviewed ad infinitum. So on this episode, we're going to ditch the usual synopses, and I'll be mostly covering lots of trivia, as well as some of the releases and the censorship of these two titles. So we'll start with Friday the 13th Part 3. So almost immediately after the success of Part 2, Paramount insisted that a sequel be made due to the roaring success, and Steve Miner thought that after the success of Part 2, they needed a new gimmick to entrance the audience, and 3D was making a bit of a comeback, mostly due to the success of recent Western comedy, Coming At Ya. A script was written that featured the return of Amy Steele as Ginny from Part 2, depicting a very Halloween 2-esque plot of Ginny at a mental hospital while the vengeful Jason stalks her and kills anyone who gets in his way. Though regretful of the decision now, Steele declined the offer and the script was rewritten to feature Jason recovering from his injuries to murder another group of unrelated teenagers. And since Crazy Ralph, who was played by Walt Gorney, had been killed in part two, the part of the homeless Abel was written in order to keep the harbinger of doom. The early draft was titled Crystal Japan, named after a David Bowie album in order to protect the film's identity, and it also discarded the burlap sack that Jason wore in Part 2, due to its similarity to The Elephant Man and The Town That Dreaded Sundown. The script was quite different to the final product at this point, however, 
Rick's character was originally Derek, and was renamed Rick to be more screamable. Abel would originally encounter Chris and Rick on their way back to the cabin, and Chris would eventually have a violent dream at the climax, in which Jason decapitates her with a machete. It's also the only entry where Jason's name is never uttered in the original script. The legendary hockey mask, however, was supposedly introduced by Martin J. Sadoff, who's the 3D effects supervisor on the film, and he was a bit of an avid hockey fan. Steve Miner loved the idea, and it has now become synonymous with Jason, even in non-horror pop culture. Trapeze artist Richard Brooker was chosen as Jason due to his physical prowess and tall stature, but he was bulked up with foam, however, as he just didn't look imposing enough without it. Shelley, who's played by now-lawyer Larry Zerner, was simply plucked from the street handing out flyers. When filming began, the house, the barn and the lake were all built specifically for the film. There was a bit of an issue with the lake, however. It wasn't quite padded out properly and it drained into the soil in just one week, forcing them to refill it. And while the set was reused in the sequel, part four, the house was burnt down in a fire in 2005 and it no longer exists, unfortunately. Filming began in January-February of 1982 in California, where it was quite cold despite the sunlight that's shown in the film. The cast often described the filming as a lot of waiting. Due to the new 3D process, setting up each shot was much more time-consuming than usual, and special precautions such as increased lighting and brighter, bolder colour clothes had to be worn by the actors in order to make the effects work. Lots of shots in the film are also framed in such a way as to exploit the 3D, evident by the nonsensical scenes of Shelley juggling or Andy playing with a yo-yo. Larry Zerner said that the most irritating shot to accomplish was in the store when he tosses the wallet towards Vera. Zernan says that he lost count of how many times it took and when it was finally perfect, the, craw- the crew roared in a collective relief. Many references to the original are actually evident in the final cut, such as Debbie's death being identical to Kevin Bacon's Jack's death from part one, and also Chris being dragged underwater by a decrepit Mrs. Voorhees, very similar to Alice's dunking at the climax of the original. The ending was particularly tricky as several versions were shot, including one where biker Ali survived, but Paramount actually disliked the morbid tone even though it was a dream, so eventually it was changed to the homage ending as seen in the release version, despite it not making too much sense as Chris is seemingly unaware of the whole legend surrounding Jason. On a budget of $4 million, the film made back at the box office a staggering $36 million, despite Paramount having to spend an extra $10 million on installing 3D-capable projectors in theatres across the US in preparation. The MPAA were unfortunately not kind to Part 3 either, requiring cuts to most of the death scenes, including a shot of Andy's gut spilling out due to being split in half, uh, Vera's eye gushing more blood, Edna's stabbing was trimmed of any excess blood, and Chili's impalement with the fire poker was originally going to be shown with some steaming blood hitting the floor, and Debbie's stabbing too was more graphic with blood spraying across her face. This version, however, butchered by the MPAA, became the standard version, with only a mythical Dutch VHS release which supposedly holds all the uncut scenes. While the film was a raving success at the UK cinemas, the VHS version was cut by the BBFC by four seconds to remove a shot of Andy's hacked body, uh, the shot of Vera's corpse in the water, and a slight trim to Debbie's stabbing. 
Even with the cuts, however, the VHS became a bestseller in 1982 when it made the rounds, leading to massive criticism in the Daily Mail newspapers. The BBFC cuts were waived upon the re-released version in 2001, but unfortunately, us die-hard fans are still awaiting the full uncut version to be released upon the world. It's very sad, but it's quite doubtful now if it will ever surface after such a long time has passed. And that was Friday the 13th Part 3, so let's get straight on to the not-so-final chapter. In spite of part 3 being designed to end the series, the film series was too financially successful to not take advantage of the potential money to make, so Steve Miner declined to return for another instalment, so it was Joseph Zito who was chosen, who'd worked on the Section 3 video Nasty, Rosemary's Killer, or The Prowler as it's commonly known. Zito was hired to direct and write the script, and though initially hesitant after finding out he was going to be paid double, he was very enthusiastic for the project. He was against using clips from the previous films, but studio pressure forced him to use at least some of them, and Tom Savini also agreed to come back on board, as long as he got to finally kill Jason, because he disagreed with the decision to bring him back in the first place in part two. Filming took place again in California, and had a reduced budget of just under two million. Now due to this very low budget, the actors had to perform most of their own stunts. Peter Barton, who played Doug, was very nervous about his death scene in the shower, as he'd been previously injured on a similar stunt, so a padded wall was used to cushion his head. Jason performer Ted White got frustrated with Zito after actress Jodie Aronson began crying due to the freezing temperature of the water when filming her death scene. Zito continued to shoot, and the actress eventually contracted hypothermia, and White threatened to leave the project if filming didn't stop that instant. Little Corey Feldman, however, was reportedly a little bit of a nuisance, so Ted White scared him for real when it was time to shoot the scene in which Jason burst through the door. White actually burst through way before the queue, resulting in Feldman's screams being genuine. Feldman also reportedly had a dislike for director Zito, and stated that in the ending his angry hacking of Jason was actually him imagining Zito when hitting the sandbags. Crispin Glover, of Back to the Future fame, played Jimbo, who has a very memorable dance scene in the film, which is actually how Glover really danced in clubs. Though he was dancing to Back in Black by ACDC, the song dubbed over the scene in the final version is Love is a Lie by Lion. 
The nurse in the opening has R. Morgan on her ID badge, which is referencing the actress Robbie Morgan, who played the f- a, a uh, ill-fated Annie in part one. Now, the nurse in question was meant to have a much more brutal death of being disemboweled, but it was filmed as a much simpler stabbing in the final film due to the MPAA's interference. A, screen in the, a scene in the original script had Jason fondle Trish's breasts when he catches her, but Zito felt that it was fa- this was far too out of character and the scene was actually discarded. Now, Rob Deere's character is a little bit of an oddity, as he's the brother of Sandra from Part 2, mostly odd due to the fact that technically she's only died a few days prior to the film's timeline, as Part 2 and Part, f- part 2 and 3 and 4 are set on consecutive nights. And he was also originally meant to have more high-tech gadgets in his arsenal too, but the actual props looked a bit too hokey and they were ultimately discarded. His death was based on an incident that Zito heard of, of a man that begged his attacker to stop stabbing him, and it was meant to be horrifying due to the sound of hearing someone screaming, he's killing me. But the final scene comes across as a little bit limp, and Zito reportedly heard audiences laugh when the scene comes up in cinemas. Lawrence Monison, who played the stoner Teddy, actually smoked marijuana for real to get into the zone for his death scene, but he couldn't actually concentrate enough to finish it, so he recovered and shot the scene without the intoxication. The film's notably a bit more violent due to Savini's involvement, but the film is also the only Friday the 13th film where Jason doesn't get to use his signature machete. And the film was originally scheduled for release in October of 1984, but an opportunity saw the date changed to April, which led to Zito and the producer Mancuso Jr. having to edit the film in a much shorter time. But the film was completed in time and released on Friday the 13th of April, and made back a whopping $32 million. The MPAA were less censorious than the other Friday films, but the film still has several scenes excised. As we mentioned before, the nurse's disembowelment was changed to a stabbing, Uh, Trish's mother was originally found drowned in a bathtub, and Jason was originally going to have his head split open before it was changed to the head slide finale. The original head slide, however, was much more bloodier, and it was cut eventually to reduce the impact. It was a roaring success again at both the US and the UK cinemas, but the film's VHS release in 1984 in the UK was cut by 20 seconds, mostly to Jason's head cutting, but also to some clips of Rob's death, uh, Jimbo's cleaver to the face, as well as the image of Trish unconscious on the ground after falling out of a window. But thankfully, the cuts were waived in 2001 upon the re-release. And that was the first of a few extra bonus episodes for you. Sorry for the length, but it is only a little bonus extra. But thank you again for listening, and I do wish you all a very pleasant weekend. 
Tune in on Tuesday for the very next episode of Nasty Pasty, where we're covering evil children. Goodbye! (laughs) 